Well, Rosemary, we were in San Diego last week and we happened to stop in the Lego store. And we were amazed at the number of Lego projects that are made for adults. I'm not, I'm not surprised. I'm going to be, I'm going to tell you right now, I buy the race cars and build them myself. Just like after dinner, some nights. Kids of all ages. They had a really cool Corvette and uh, the Magic Kingdom Castle and the Titanic, which, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces. And it would take you probably weeks to do. I don't, I don't, Rosemary, you seem like a Lego expert though. I did live close to Lego in Denmark. So I guess, you know, obviously I've absorbed some sort of expertise, but yeah, during the pandemic, my, part, my partner and I discovered that you don't have to have kids to buy Lego. Yeah, you, you can as an adult buy buy a kit and not worry about your kid doing it wrong. <laughs> you can just just do it yourself, and you could you can give it to them afterwards. There's a connection between Orsted and Lego. Like the ex CEO of Lego was a, at one point in time the CEO of Orsted, like the two two CEOs ago or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. That's going to be a prime job, right? Like when you're looking for jobs in the newspaper in Denmark, when Lego pops up, that's got to be one of your top choices, right? Just build Legos all day? Since we're in the Scandinavian countries, uh, Phil, why don't you kick off? So this week we're talking about uh, new incentives that the Swedish government is putting in place to build onshore wind farms. And lightning strikes are responsible for... 70% of the catastrophic losses in the first half of this year. Then we head over to Woodbury County in Iowa, where they're debating the setbacks for wind turbines and seem to be increasing and increasing and increasing the distance. And then over to Australia, where we're talking about tariffs on products like uh, steel and cement, uh, if they have carbon emissions associated with them to support green versions of those industries. And in the States here, Invenergy is purchasing AEP's uh, unregulated assets, about 1.4 gigawatts for about 1.5 billion, with a B, dollars. Uh, and then jumping offshore in the U.S., go to the East Coast, the Commonwealth Wind uh, is exiting their PPA. There's about a $50 million penalty on the table, and a couple of the Massachusetts uh, state agencies can't quite agree uh, which direction they want to go. And then Ottertail Power Company over on the border there of Minnesota and uh, North Dakota. Uh, Laverne Wind Farm is our Wind Farm of the Week. I'm Alan Hall. I'm here with my good friends Joel Saxon, Phil Tataro, and Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Swedish wind industry is urging the government to eliminate barriers for onshore wind project permits. Now, there's been a a problem at the sort of the county local level in Sweden to get projects approved, and wind developers are starting to get a little bit antsy about that, and rightly so. Uh, What they're suggesting here is that the national government, federal government, incentivize the local governments to move ahead with the permitting process and to, to get these projects permitted faster. And it has sort of a, a follow-on effect that uh, the investors in these projects uh, could get the, get their money in place to make them happen. One of the big problems in Sweden, Norway also, it sounds like, and in the States is you can have a bunch of money, have everything in order, but you're just never sure when the paperwork is going to be uh, completed 
so Sweden's trying a slightly different model. And as we Phil, as we've seen in New Jersey, getting anything permitted in a state like that can be really difficult. It sounds like Sweden's having a very similar problem. They are, Alan. And what's interesting about this is that, you know, you can either have the uh, wind project developers pay the local municipalities directly, uh, or you can have the federal government collect tax revenue and then use that to facilitate payments to the local communities. So I think the latter is what they're trying to implement, uh, it sounds like. And I mean, to me, it sounds like a reasonably good strategy. Um you know, bottom line, anything that speeds up permitting, because there's a rather significant amount of investment that um, is waiting to be unlocked in, in Sweden. They already have more than 4,000 wind turbines installed, um, but they've got a pipeline of another like 20,000 uh, wind turbines that have been proposed. So it's, you know, there's a lot of market potential there if they're going to speed things up. So does does that have implications in terms of uh, if if the federal government is is proposing this, where it just pr- it creates a level playing field, if each of the individual uh, wind turbine operators go to the local governments, wouldn't it just be sort of a bidding process of, well, if you want to go faster, you have to pay more sort of situation, and putting the national government in charge of that just sort of levels the playing field. Is is that the thought here? Yes, and and actually, I think that's the point. Yeah, and I'd say uh, to add on to that, most of my experience with Swedish wind farm owners. Are they fall into the financial asset owner category? A lot of them have they they just put the money up and they have a couple of asset managers, a couple of people that will be in charge of construction. But for the most part, those wind farms are all run by FSAs and those kind of things from the OEMs. Uh, and a lot of them are remote, right? If you've ever just scrolled through Google Earth and looked at in Sweden, not these wind farms are not in. It's not like in the middle of the United States where they're covering farm fields and cattle farms and things like this, right? A lot of them are in the timber, in the woods, uh, away from communities, away from homes. Um, so the siting issues shouldn't be as bad. Um, so like uh, Phil was saying, um, just kind of un- unlocking it a little bit should should make the development go fairly quick. And I think, Rosemary, before we, we hopped on and started recording, you had some insights about the, the culture over there in Sweden, too, with the, the locals. Well, I mean, I, so I lived in, in Scandinavia and obviously Sweden is a Scandinavian country and, um, yeah, common to that Scandinavian countries is a, a high trust in government and I think Sweden is probably number one of those. So I think this sort of move, it, it could potentially work in, in Sweden where, you know, people generally do trust that the government has their best interest at heart. They're not so um, cynical as in some other countries. But I also think it means that um, things that work in Scandinavia that involve the government aren't necessarily going to translate well into other countries that um, don't have that high level of trust. Yeah, and I think that I just read something today that said by 2040, Sweden wants to be 100% renewables. They've got so much potential there. It's it's an area that I used. To, it's probably the most um, the the wind farm that or the, the area that I visited the most when I was uh, working in Denmark was northern Sweden which is um, yeah, the area where I was. There's a couple of different wind farms there, um, about 100 kilometres south of the Arctic Circle. Uh, there is a small town there that was getting reinvigorated and a lot of the people that I worked with were um, people who grew up in the area, had had to leave for work and now were so excited that there, was, there were decent jobs there that they could move back to. So that's, um, you know, wind turbine technicians and 
also um, a guy who had started a, a wind turbine repair um, company is specializing in repairing the um, blade heating systems uh, you know when when they get damaged on the blade surface it's uh, quite a specialized job to repair that without causing short circuits um, and yeah other <laughs> other problems so I've always used that as an example of it, a really good example of how you can take an area that has really great um, renewable energy potential and build industry around it because it wasn't just the, the wind turbines the wind industry that was growing up there it was other energy intensive manufacturers so um, you see that there's now there's a green hydrogen project there that they're using to make green steel that um, hybrid project uh, also, um, the Northvolt, the battery, the green battery company is in that sort of area as well. Um, I visited a manufacturer who was making prefab bathrooms uh, up there, you know, oh, and also there was plans of um, opening a carbon fiber factory. I'm not sure if they, you know, actually make the carbon fiber itself. Super energy intensive. Uh, I don't think that one got up, but, um, you know, that's the sort of the sort of thing instead of, generating your energy where it exists and then building heaps of transmission to, to get it away from the area. It is also possible to uh, move the energy intensive industry to where the, the energy is. And it's kind of, you export the energy in a sense in, in that way. And it's a bit easier than, yeah, either building a lot of transmission or the other alternative is, you know, something like hydrogen. Speaking of Sweden, Sweden's had a number of uh, lightning storms recently. Just looking at one of them that happened in the beginning of August, I was shocked at how many lightning strikes they had. And there was a, an article put out by uh, Swiss Re saying that 70% of the insured natural catastrophe losses in the first half of 2023 were due to thunderstorms. Yikes. Uh, the leading causes, mostly in the US actually. So is that just wind farms or is that across all, all insurance industry? All insurance, right? There's just been more lightning strikes, particularly in the U.S. this year. And the, uh, the Swiss Re was saying that the insured losses due to U.S. thunderstorms surpass their uh, significantly sur significantly surpass their 10-year average. Right, so all actuarial charts are based on averages. Right, so they ha they have a number sort of built into the system of how much it's going to cost them in insurance claims. Well, they sort of blew through that number <laughs> earlier this year. Uh, now, I, I think. Swiss Re is um, making some assumptions about what is causing it. They're attributing it to climate warming and some other heating of, of local communities. Uh, I'm not sure if, if that's the case or not, but we, I have noticed, and we've looked at a number of lightning strike uh, situations this year in the U.S., you're not having a couple of lightning strikes in a neighborhood. You're having thousands, 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 thousands in a short period of time. Crazy. So anybody that's not sure kind of how the insurance industry works, these natural catastrophes, the, the, the buzzword is always going to be SCS, so severe convective storms. And those are all based on models, right? So they can, they'll say, hey, we'll expect this many storms of this magnitude in this area based on predicted data from the past, right? And as we, as, as we follow along here, right, we're all involved in what would be the leading edge of climate change or, or however you want to call it, you see you know, more, more wildfires, more intense storms, more intense hurricanes, kind of weather patterns changing on a global scale. I mean, if you look this, this summer has been the hottest uh, sea temperatures average in the world like than, than we've recorded, right? So all of those things have the, the 
possibility of changing weather patterns. So if they start changing weather patterns that drastically and that fast, those models don't mean anything anymore, right? If you if you say like, hey, we're used to having X amount of storms, and then all of a sudden the model gets thrown out, well, that's that's going to wreak havoc on the global insurance industry, whether it's for renewable energies, you know, hail storms hitting solar panels or lightning storms hitting wind turbines. Uh, that's one small part of it, right? The the whole insurance industry is based on these these same models that have been around for a long, long time. And if they change quickly, what'll happen is these oh, like Swiss Re is a reinsurance uh, group, right? So they they sit and they insure the insurers. They're like the second line of defense, but they have a massive amount of capital behind them. These groups have billions and billions of dollars of capital. Well, if they start seeing loss runs go up and up and up, well, then they're going to have to raise premiums and raise premiums. And if their models can't keep up, it's it's worse for the entire global financial industry. Yeah, well, they had $34 billion in insured losses in the first six months in the U.S. alone due to storms, basically storms. That's crazy. $34 billion is a lot of money. Yeah, that's that's insane. Uh, and, I, you know, what we have seen sort of towards the second half, well, we're in the second half of 2023. I don't think it's slowing down. In fact, we should be seeing some more escalation of that in September and October. Usually September and October are pretty big storm months. In fact, I think in San Diego, we were just in San Diego, San Diego's expecting a hurricane to hit, hit the shoreline. So weird weather, right? Yeah, really really hot Gulf temperatures down on the Gulf Coast of the U.S., but we haven't had a bad hurricane come, agra- uh, come ashore yet, which is surprising, to be honest with you. But we're getting into that season where it's uh, there, there should be some cooking. I know that, yeah, like you just said, hurricane, I think they're calling it hurricane now, Hillary? Coming up the coast of uh, of California is going to do some some work there, and usually you don't hear about anything touching the coast of California. Well, no, they're talking about Los Angeles getting hit. San Diego or Los Angeles gets hit, it's going to be a big problem. Those places are pretty flat; they don't have a lot of drainage, so the water just kind of stays there. <laughs> they don't really have a sewer system, so it will be, um, yeah, not good. Hopefully that that doesn't come on shore. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Uh, Speaking of things happening on shore, in Iowa, Mid-American Energy is facing a big pushback about building wind turbines in Woodbury County. Now, Woodbury County is sort of in western Iowa, kind of near the Nebraska border up in there. Uh, and and Mid-American, as we know, has a lot of turbines in Iowa, about 3,400 at the moment in 33 Iowa counties, and there's a total of 99 counties in Iowa. So they're in a third of the counties in Iowa. That's a large area they're covering. Uh, so the Woodbury County Board increased setback distances. Phil, you ready for this? Uh, from 1,250 feet to 2,500 feet for rural residences. But they also increased the setback from 600 feet to two miles around incorporated towns. <laughs> So uh, Mid-America says that, well, when they do that, you you can still squeeze in 100 wind turbines in the county. So they're saying, well, okay, well, maybe we'll just put in the 100 turbines. But it's not so much the number of turbines they're going to be able to put in there, is, but that these 
restrictions and these setbacks are becoming more and more prevalent at the county and city level. Uh, this, you know, we've been talking about this quite a bit, but you see them more and more in the news articles, particularly local news, where the setbacks are getting really big. Two miles is a long ways. Probably too long for and and keep in mind that a lot of these setbacks are done that way intentionally to try and slow down or stop project development in certain you know incorporated townships or um, you know even even in the unincorporated unincorporated areas. Um, you know, 2,500 feet is a lot more than what we're used to. Yes, turbines are getting bigger, but we we still need to be able to site projects where the wind resource is the best. And if we're not able to do that, then it's making projects unviable, uh, which again, I think is kind of the point that some of these people who are putting these uh, local uh, restrictions in place, I think that's what they're trying to do. They're I mean, imagine the state of Iowa where, like you said, I mean, Mid-American is the biggest utility in the entire state. They've done more for the state. It's billions of dollars in, in industry that's been brought there as a result of them building all the wind and solar farms that they have over the years. And now you have counties and townships throughout Iowa saying, no more, no more wind. We don't like making money anymore. That's not to mention, I think in, in Iowa, correct me if I'm wrong, but Alan, but I think there's three different factories that produce blades and nacelles and other products in that state as well. So it's like biting the hand that feeds. You know, F Phil, one of the things I'd like to see is um, at these county governments or town board meetings or whatever is what are they citing for their information to pass the law, right? What are they saying? Like, tw we have 1,250 feet. We went to 2,500 feet. Why? Can you, is it, is it flicker related? Is it noise? Like, is there, has there been testing done? Or are they just saying like, what do you think, Bob? I think 2,500 feet. Sounds good. I think you can get an idea of what their intentions are. If you compare these setbacks um, to other kinds of energy generation, because I know in Australia for a while in, um, yeah, certain parts of Australia, you could actually build a coal power plant closer to somebody's home than you could build a wind turbine. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Like no one, no one wants to live with a, a wind turbine in their literal backyard, but I would rather have a wind turbine in my backyard than have a coal power plant in my backyard, you know, considering that those actually documented and proven that that's bad for you um, compared to, you know, the idea that you might be annoyed at having to look at something like a wind turbine. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy the way that people <laughs> just, yeah, single out one technology um, for this kind of treatment compared to the way that we are able to, you know, accept that we, we need other kinds of public infrastructure. It's, I mean, I, I can't see the logic behind it. Yeah, I wonder, if, wonder at uh, some point in time if uh, eminent domain will come into play, right? Because if eminent domain in the U.S. is based on the good for the, the good for the community or the good for the populace. They can take people's farms, take, like I was, when I was a land surveyor, when I was young working for a civil engineering firm, we took a, a whole, there was like a 40 mile stretch in the middle of Illinois where every intersection was on a correction line, right? And the, the public land surveys, it goes like, the road goes here and then it goes over 700 feet or so. And then the, and then you have to go up, left, right, to stay on that highway. Well, it makes more sense if you get the main highways and you just kind of curve them and then join back up. Well, we took farms we took uh i mean right through the middle of people's cattle paddocks we went um an apple orchard we went took all kinds of there's legal battles for all of it but that's based on eminent domain what's good for the people and at some point if 
I would think if these are regulated utilities, one of these companies may be able to rise that up in a, in a lawsuit. It just sounds like a really good way to have a huge culture war between people that, you know, want renewables and people that, that don't, even I would probably, you know, shy away from getting involved in that. Yeah, I mean, it's in the US, it's a way, I mean, we, there's been times when shopping malls have been built using eminent domain, airports, highways, those kind of things. So casinos. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's a long-standing doctrine. And I don't know if it's been, I've never heard of it being used for renewable generation yet, but I could see that coming down the pipeline at some point in time. Transmission, yes, but not a renewables project. Not generation. Even, Joel, even going back to your earlier question, where are they getting their information from? This is exactly what we were talking about a few weeks ago as well, which is a lot of this stuff is based on flawed and disproven um, information that has been out there from anti-wind groups all over the place. And right now, they're the only ones doing the talking. Years ago, we used to have people that were involved in grassroots, you know, community outreach and relationship building that doesn't exist anymore. And so it's leaving the independent power producers and project developers to twist in the wind. So I'm not happy. Australian Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen suggests a possible tariff on imported steel and cement to prevent a disadvantage for local producers aiming to reduce carbon emissions. Now, Rosemary, you have produced YouTube videos talking about green hydrogen, green cement, right? Green steel. Uh, this is right up your alley. So it seems like Australia is going to put some some tax incentives or, or tax taxes, tariffs on outside steel and outside uh, cement making such that Australia can have greener cement and steel. Does, but does that make sense? If, if you're trying to develop so many things that are happening in Australia at the moment, don't you need to have some outside steel, some outside fertilizer, some outside uh, cement to make things go? Well, we have a lot of, um, yeah, mo most of our produced materials like that are coming from outside at the moment. And it's been something that for, you know, decades, Australians have been annoyed that, you know, we don't make those things anymore. There's a whole bunch of different examples that, you know, it's a kind of conversation that even non-energy geeks, non-engineers will talk about at barbecues and, and stuff is how we will chop down our native forests, send wood chips to Japan, Japan sends us back paper. We, you know, dig up um, iron ore, send the dirt or, you know, lithium rocks, whatever, send that to China, they process it and send it back to us. And it's just, it's crazy. I actually made a series of, of videos on this for the, um, there's an Australian manufacturing, um, oh, I can't remember the name, uh, but, you know, an, an industry group that is, um, you know, aiming to support the Australian manufacturing industry. And I made a series of videos about how the manufacturing value chain works and how if you're just doing the very first part of the, you know, the value chain and the, the mining, just actually taking the rocks, that you're missing the big part of the value. The the value comes from the, the processing. And, you know, you the more that you do to that material, the more value that you get out of it. Um, and Australia used to add a lot of that value back in the day, you know, a long time ago, Australia had cheap energy. And so we manufactured a lot of those, those things. 
Um, and then our energy prices got more expensive and it became cheaper to, you know, offshore to Asia largely, like the rest of the world was doing as well. And so we, yeah, we, we don't do those things anymore. But now this is really similar to what I was saying before about what Northern Sweden is doing, you know, t- realizing that they have great renewable and en- renewable energy potential and that um, you can, you know, take advantage of that by getting industry to come. Um, that's something that Australia could be doing too. You know, we have so many talks about growing a huge green hydrogen export industry um, where green hydrogen or any color of hydrogen is so hard to transport. Uh, you know, it's, it's just crazy. No one transports it today. If you need hydrogen, you tend, generally tend to make it um, very close to the place where you want to use it. So we have this idea that we're going to, you know, somehow overcome the um, chemistry and the engineering that dictates how inefficient that is to transport hydrogen. But no one's looking at the really obvious thing that we could do, which is instead of, yeah, taking our rocks and dirt and wood chips and sending them overseas for them to process and sell back to us, why don't we use our renewable energy potential to process that stuff onshore? Um, in, instead, much easier way to, you know, kind of export the, the embodied energy in those products than, yeah, than hydrogen or, um, you know, giant subsea cables. So I'm kind of really excited to see that possibility opening up. I, I think I'll be surprised if we do end up with tariffs because, uh, you know, we've got trade agreements with most of these countries. And, um, yeah, I think it's more like the sort of thing that you say that you're going to do to kind of get the local people excited about, you know, some of the, the other aspects of it. Because it's not so long ago in the, under the previous government, I'm pretty sure that they were opposing Europe's plans to, you know, install a um, carbon border adjustment mechanism um, because then we wouldn't be able to sell them our, our dirty products anymore. So it's, you know, I think the first step is to support uh, other countries that want to, clean clean these industries up and the main thing is just to have um a separate price for the green the green version of these products because in the first case you know there is going to be a a green premium um for yeah steel or cement that's made without emissions so if there is someone willing to pay more for it then it will really support those industries and for the most part at least these um, the, the green versions of these products should eventually become cheaper than the, the fossil fuel versions. But um, they just need that support. in the, To get to that point, there needs to be enough of a market for it that those industries can scale. And, yeah, I, I think it's one of the most obvious things that we should be doing in Australia. Talk about for decades. Glad to see that finally, you know, someone in the federal government is starting to lean in that direction. It's sort of a one-way street here, right? Because the European Union is planning on creating these carbon border adjustment mechanisms in 2026, right? That's going to really hurt Australia immediately and China and probably the wind turbine manufacturers in the EU that use a lot of Chinese components, right? I mean, this is just this is just going to make things much more difficult. It's not necessarily going to change the way companies build these products uh i think it, i mean it's a it's a big incentive to change the way that companies build these these products and um i i think that there are so many other benefits to doing it that way that you know i don't i don't see it having uh, an overall bad impact for australia i see it overall as an opportunity there will be individual manufacturers that have you know invested a lot in their um you know existing manufacturing methods 
that they can't easily decarbonize that will be hurt. But honestly, Australia doesn't manufacture a lot of a lot of stuff. It is mostly, um, you know, we are mostly digging stuff out of the ground um, and still chopping down native trees and um, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I would think it definitely overall falls into the opportunity um, kind of column rather than the um, than the threat column. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PESWind at PESWind.com. Invenergy, a leading developer of sustainable energy solutions, announced the closure of its acquisition of American Electric Power's roughly 1.4 gigawatt unregulated contracted renewables portfolio for, hold your, onto your seats, $1.5 billion dollars. Uh, the acquisition was carried out by a number of large uh, financial companies, in, including Blackstone uh, Infrastructure Partners. So this acquisition by Invenergy you know, makes them really large uh, and a, a large player in the United States market for sure. Now, the weird thing about this is because the IRA bill is happening in the middle of this, of this transaction – uh, they needed to have a way to handle the production tax credit, so they created a financial vehicle. And IRG Acquisition Holdings uh, basically created a, a $580 million uh, commitment for those production tax credits to be rolled over to Invenergy from AEP, it sounds like. Bill, does, does that make sense? Um the production tax credit is sort of a weird old system, right? It's I think it's based on the legacy ownership of the um, the production tax credit rights and the royalty payments associated with it. So I think this is just a financial mechanism where they're paying for Invenergy's paying for the opportunity to claim the the PTC revenue associated with this project um, and any subsequent repowering of of the project. If in the audience we do have someone that is a PTC uh, credit specialist for a law firm or something, reach out because we'd love to have a conversation. So, you know, we're, we're armchair uh, experts about the PTC credits and we've read the bills and we kind of understand how the whole system works. But to have a uh, get someone in here that is a true, true expert would be kind of exciting, I think. How does that play out in terms of the IRA bill also, right? Because there's a lot of incentives in the IRA bill. Do those automatically roll over to Invenergy? Or does AEP have to delegate those or just transfer them over? There's, there's a lot of, with the federal government being involved in a lot of these financial transactions because of the tax credits, they must have some intrinsic value when you purchase the assets, right? I would think they would just go right with them. I don't understand why there's a need for a vehicle. And that's kind of why I'm a little bit lost here is like whoever owns the assets, whoever's producing the kilowatt hours of energy should get the credits. That seems pretty basic to me, but... Uh, there's definitely something here going on. I don't understand. Is this a repowering play, Phil, in the long terms? The key to this is the fact that this um, asset portfolio, uh, according to AEP and Invenergy, is the unregulated uh, assets, meaning that presumably they're selling most of the power on the merchant market. Um, and, you know, 
repowering a a merchant uh, a merchant fed plant um, is a it's a crapshoot basically you know you're you're counting on the merchant power price being above a particular level in order for you to be able to make back your um, you know your initial capital investment on a project and so if the merchant power price drops uh, enough then you know you're you're in a position where you may not you may have to repower multiple times or you may have um other need to be able to extract additional value out of your asset to be able to pay back the um upfront capital that you spent on um the construction or the repowering of it in the first place bill is there a situation where where say Invenergy takes over these unregulated assets and then goes to they they may be you know on the merchant market and then says you know what we'd like to secure power purchase agreements for these and then they could go into that whatever sector would be or or even uh, private power purchase agreements is is that do you think we'll start to see some of that to, so they can safeguard their bottom line maybe <laughs> um, the reason I'm hesitating about it is that would obviously be ideal yes they're allowed to do it. Uh, first of all, it would be ideal for them if they could, because obviously a fixed price contract is more predictable, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the the trick with this is that even the merchant market operators like your MISOs and your, your COTS of the world, they want more capacity taken out of the merchant market and into a fixed PPA, whether it's corporate or utility, whatever. Um, because then it frees up more space in the merchant market where new projects that are in the consent queue can get built and, uh, and approved. So there's, there's every, um, interest and incentive from a lot of the, the market participants, uh, to be able to, to do that. It's just a question of demand. The utility PPA market is fairly well saturated. Um, and again, without additional consumer or industrial um, demand for for electricity increasing, you're not going to see utilities wanting to strike more PPAs. Um, but the corporate power offtake agreements is an interesting market because it's grown. It's continuing to, you know, and will continue to grow. Um, and it could offer some of these companies that mechanism to get either a fixed price or some kind of, you know, um, floor and ceiling type of hedge uh, on the the power pricing uh, that they get off the the merchant market. So it it can offer an incentive. Yes, Commonwealth Wind, a twelve hundred megawatt offshore wind project off the coast of Massachusetts, has been seeking approval from the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities to scrap its contracts with the utility companies. The project's developer Avon Grid has argued that it can no longer finance the project under the current contract. Uh, pricing. It, however, in a twist, in Ma the Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources has supported Commonwealth Wind's request to terminate the contract. So we have two sort of Massachusetts agencies, one, the Department of Public Utilities that's being very hesitant about canceling the contract, and another one, the Department of Energy Resources, thinking that it's probably in the best interest to go ahead and terminate the contract. With with payment, right, Phil? There's there's a bunch of money that comes along with the termination. Yeah, it's a little over forty eight million dollars, I think. Um, but what's interesting about it is the utility, you know, board wants to keep the agreement because the PPAs are like the best PPAs ever, right? They're like you know around seventy eighty dollars, 
Uh, and who wants to, you know, who wants to give up that kind of a deal? Um, but if Avangrid can't actually make money, then, you know, there's going to have to be, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before as well. There's going to have to be some kind of concession uh, provided. It's also, you know, not to kind of shift gears, but it's also what's driven um, some of these changes in like New York um, and some of the proposed changes in other states as well where they're looking at contracting, but they're saying, all right, look, you bid what you bid, and you're not allowed to increase your bid later, um, which is kind of fascinating because it's like, all right, well, then that's going to make for an even more competitive marketplace. Did you read that, basically the PPA from New York? Uh, I saw an article and I couldn't find it later, but it was they're looking at numbers like $125 a megawatt hour for offshore New York. Does that sound roughly right? Uh, yeah. I mean, keep in mind, so we've got some of the projects in Massachusetts were down around, like, like I said, between like 77 and I want to say $82. You've got some of the ones in New Jersey that are, I want to say between like 82, $85. Um, so they're all, I mean, you know, and then again, New York, um, Rhode Island, some of the, you know, and these are all like the newer projects. Um, even the coastal Virginia offshore wind, I mean, a lot of them are down around the $100 megawatt hour range, um, but they're presumably going to have to go up if inflation is impacting CapEx costs as much as it is. You can't have CapEx costs go up by, let's say, 20, 25% and not adjust the PPA. It's, you know, there's, I mean... Part of it, you know, you can argue, well, maybe it's just, you know, impacting margins a, a little bit more um, for the IPP. But in reality, some of them just can't build projects. And those are the ones that have stopped. Yeah, the margins, I think when we looked at it the other week, margins were between 6 and 8% is what they were shooting for. So if, you're, if your price goes up 20% on your CapEx, like, well, that just shoots that in the foot. You're underwater before you even um, put one piece of steel in the water. Where will the PPA prices eventually end up, Phil? Will they be 125, 130 pretty soon, pretty standard? New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, all the way down to North Carolina, Virginia? Well, it's obviously going to vary. You know, it's you don't have to have PPA prices as high in the Northeast because in the Northeast, you're you're talking about displacing a lot of dirty power with legacy PPAs that were well above $100 a megawatt hour. Um, the bottom line is we, we've projected that PPA prices were going to eventually come down to a, a settle around you know, $56 a megawatt hour long term, but that's out by you know, like 2035 kind of time frame. Earlier than that, you're going to see it. It's been spiking up this year and it's going to continue to spike up as long as interest rates remain where they are as well. You know, hey, Federal Reserve, why don't you guys get your act together and start cutting? Yeah, I'm trying to buy a house. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the bottom line is uh, they're going up short term, but they're expected to come down longer term. Like I said, we're projecting somewhere around, you know, market average in the United States around $56 a megawatt hour long term, but that's out at 2035. It's going to, you know, inch down and down and down um, to that level uh, as we go. But it's it's interesting because it also coincides with where, you know, onshore prices are, um, you know, onshore wind, solar, et cetera. 
if these are all relatively cheap, and this is, I mean, again, not to shift gears, but this is getting us into the challenge with the Gulf of Mexico auction. If they have an overabundance already in onshore resources, wind, solar, and it's dirt cheap, and even in ERCOT, they have negative pricing from time to time, then why is anybody building offshore unless they have a specific need for that power? Like, I could see the oil and gas companies wanting to build it because they'll take the power, they'll use it for their rig. Um, but we don't need a more expensive power on the grid if it's just unsustainable. And so going back to this thing in Massachusetts, that's why this is happening. They're just saying that it's unsustainable. I think the answer to that depends where we are on the energy transition. Cause I kind of like a split, um, split, split it into two, two parts. And the first part of the energy transition, it was like every clean megawatt hour is the same as any other clean megawatt hour. And so then you just want the cheapest, um, electricity possible, which is, you know, solar or onshore wind. Um, but more and more companies and some cities, including the other one where I live, Canberra, starting to look at not just, you know, like matching the total volume of energy used in a year with power purchase agreements, but also, you know, 24 seven, every hour of every day should be, should be matched. And in that case, you are going to end up needing some more expensive sources like offshore wind or energy storage. I, I think that's the reason why you could say, you know, you would, it, there is a market for these more expensive sources because, I mean, we're not going to get to 100% renewables by, you know, just installing the amount of solar power that, you know, the world uses because we also use power at night, you know, so... The, the really cheap source of energy, that was great for the first part where we could just absorb more and more and more clean energy. But as we move into the second phase of the energy transition, the, the hard phase, then we're gonna, we are gonna need more expensive sources. And now we're at like, the, I think we're at the first part of that where people are vol voluntarily saying, okay, it's not enough to just, you know, buy power purchase agreements. What we really need to do is make sure that there's always clean energy available at every hour of the day because that's you know eventually when the whole world is you know, zero emissions that's how it's going to have to be obviously yeah and and to to back that up too rosemary the what the areas that we're putting look, looking at putting offshore wind in the gulf are right next to major load centers right so if you can get a constant power near a major load center that's a, a lot different than have than plumbing in onshore wind from west texas to houston through the through transmission because there's not a whole lot of renewable generation around like Houston say right and the planned BOEM auction for the Gulf there is right off right down the street from Houston so I think that there's a a bigger play there too up in North Dakota Ottertail Power is planning to repower the Laverne Wind Project in Steele County North Dakota uh, the Laverne Wind Project is a 49 and a half megawatt uh, facility. And it currently uses 33 GE 1.5 XLE 82 and a half uh, turbines on site. It was commissioned in 2009, but they're in the midst of repowering. They got their paperwork in to repower, and it looks like that's going to happen. So, Joel, they're going to move up to newer GE 1.697s while keeping the same towers in the cells. That seems like a familiar pattern we've seen. Oh, yeah. Autotail is also considering repowering their Langdon Ashtubula uh, farms, which are right next door, actually. So there's there's a, a bunch of repowering happening in North Dakota, but 
the Laverne Wind Project is our wind farm of the week. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.